This is the Cop Think Podcast, where we answer the question, why do the police do what they do? My host is, our, no, who, you're, I'm the host, I'm Brian Casey. Yes, sir. Who are you? Yes, sir. My name is Tony Dean. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, this is um, kind of very Tony Dean-esque, because all I have to do is look at you and you'll start talking. Is that true about you? T- uh, totally accurate, yeah. And uh, I think the people that are around me the most, um, they've gotten pretty good at letting me know when it's too much talking. Really? What do they, uh, what do coworkers do? Give you a look? Uh, it depends on the coworker, right? Uh, um, officer Fields will just tell me that the person's not interested or listening, right? And, and that doesn't hurt my feelings. It's actually helpful. Yeah. Um, I think other people just walk away. <laughs> no, so <laughs> you're talking dirt. about talking like um, to other cops and they're like enough or you're saying when you're out with suspects and interviewing people? Kind of, kind of both. Um, <laughs> I think just in general, the, kind of the way my brain works is I have all of this information that I've either collected or that I'm processing in the moment. And then for me, I, I've explained this to my wife, uh, which is helpful, right? Because she does the same thing. She it's just too, it's too much talking. Um, but I've explained that like it's almost a relief to get the information out, right? Because it's formulating, it's processing, it's going around my brain. And so... Uh, I'll talk to people about a case or whatever it is. And so in my brain, I've connected up all of these people and how I know them, where I know them from, how they know each other. And somebody's just like, is this the person in the picture or not? And so yeah. they've gotten oh, not so you, the Cliff Notes version. Oh, I get it. So you start unloading all the connections yeah. in your, rather than a simple answer. Yeah. And, and I think that's how my brain wants me to convey the information, but the receiver um, maybe that's not what they want. Maybe maybe it's because you collect it that way. Uh, totally the case. And and when they when you when they ask for it, you unload it that way. Maybe I don't know. Yeah. Um. And and I think it's a really interesting thing. You know, when when um you get older, you kind of try to uh, self-diagnose or self-assess. Sure. Uh, once you become um more connected with like why. Why am I how I am? Yeah. And a lot of it, I think, especially like being a husband and a father, right? Like you try to self-diagnose why you drive your family crazy yeah. and, and fix it so that you can have your family, right? Because uh, the ultimate goal, I think, um, is to be one in the house and then have successful relationships or have your relationships be better than um, the relationships that you grow up around, not that people don't grow up around great relationships, but um, you self-analyze. Uh, and so then, specifically for me, I, w- I would have people at work say, um, you're too invested. And, you know, uh, turn it off or this and that. But I, w- I always, like, I was kind of, I did, it's not that I took offense to that, but I, I felt like you don't know enough about me individually. You're kind of just laying this blanket statement on that. Right. And so then when you think about it, for me, like when I self think about it, I'm like, uh, I think my brain process is different. And so you WebMD it or you Google, (laughs) right? Because we have that at our hands. And then I look at something like uh, Asperger's. And so when you look at Asperger's, uh, one of the symptoms criteria is that you tend to focus on something and then seek out information and process information differently than maybe normal people would. And so I don't know that 
uh, one, I haven't been to a doctor and been diagnosed, but just when you see something and it's familiar and it helps you to kind of explain, then you're like, man, I was like that, that kind of hits me to a T yeah. with regard to like the way that I process information. And so I was like five years old reading the entire newspaper, not only reading the entire newspaper, but like knowing the statistics, knowing all the players on baseball teams and football teams and hockey teams. And so like that, it's always been a kind of my process. If that makes sense. It does make sense. Um, even the idea of being married and having children, what it does, I think, it forces you to do some self-assessment, too, because oh, yeah. otherwise it, um, it's one of the challenges of being married is you, you have to look at yourself. And so that makes sense. Um, the, you read the newspaper at five years old. That's funny. I, I kind of have an image of you sitting at the table having a cup of coffee and Reading and commenting on the sports section, maybe. Yeah, and it's, um, so my uncle, um, married to my mother's uh, sister, he would bring me with to meet with this group of uh, guys Saturday mornings, right? So I'd spend the night, um, and he would bring me with, and I could engage in the conversation um, because they would talk about sports. Uh-huh. And then it kind of became a thing where they would like – throw stuff at me to see just be just because i think whenever you whenever you see something um you it, it becomes interesting and so it, there's some novelty in it but sure. uh yeah i could i could uh dice take in all that information uh regurgitate it um know the players know who plays for all the teams like being that aware it's interesting to look back on it now, being 37 years old, having it be that long ago, and then having it translate to uh, what I do for work and uh, even previous jobs. Well, um, let me ask you, so uh, your, your trips with your uncle, you're hanging out with your uncle and his friends, was that in St. Paul? Um, no, primarily Bloomington. And so um, I lived in St. Paul, um, but I would spend a lot of time uh, with with my aunt, uh, just because I had, my mom had me young, and um, just a relationship, and, sure. and so I w- I would spend a lot of time at my grandparents' house. I would spend a lot of time at my aunt's house, and and um, I think it's a, it's kind of a symptom, right? My mom was a single mother. Uh, she was young. She was the youngest of ten kids. Um, they're Irish from Chicago, and so. They're Irish Catholic from Chicago, and um, my grandpa and grandma started having babies, and by about the fourth or fifth baby, they couldn't afford to live in Chicago anymore, um, and then they're Irish Catholic, and so uh, the funny story, my grandpa always used to, or my grandpa used to always say it, but uh, it was passed on from uh, his children, my aunts and uncles, was uh, whenever they'd hear the beds get pushed together, they knew that another <laughs> sibling was coming. Um, which is, uh, you know, if you know about being Irish Catholic that, uh, no contraception and, you know, it goes, it goes, there's many layers to it. Right. And so, um, my mom being the youngest of 10 children and then having me when she was like 19, 20 years old, um, she just required assistance. And, and so, um, when you grow up with a single parent and you're an only child, right? Like, 
you have to find ways to entertain yourself. You have to be adaptable and stuff like that. And so I developed these relationships, especially with my uncle. He was like my male role model Sure. until my uh, mom got married. And so um, my stepdad adopted me when I was like nine or 10 years old. Um, and so I've just been blessed to have all these different relationships that aren't like the traditional. Uh-huh. And so, like, uh, it's interesting when people don't have, like, what people consider family, but they, they have relationships. And then, you know, fast forward to 2020, and they talk about, like, nuclear family, and they talk about um, it doesn't have to be these people. You can have these relationships. So you had, ad- you had adult or adults in your life that you could rely on? Yes. Yeah. That, um, that's, yeah. That'll save any kid. Yeah. Won't it? Or, I don't know if that's a blanket statement, but that, that'll save a kid. Yeah, and especially since uh, my mom had a lot of adversity yeah. that was prior to even me being born and trauma and uh, all the stuff that comes with adversity and trauma, right? You have mental health, you have chemical dependency, sure. and, and just the age, too. Like, it's really tough for young people that haven't really grasped and laid roots into, like, what being adult is and then having a, a person depend on you. Or have it be like what's supposed to be like your most important relationship and then not being able to like do everything that that person needs. You know, just do the best you can. Right. So, yeah. Well, let me ask you then, um, based on how you grew up, mm-hmm. uh, where you grew up, um, and your um, the way you collected data and made those connections – how did that convert to the work you do now? What's the work you do now, and and how are you known in the police department? I mean. So uh, currently, I'm assigned to the uh, gang gun unit, and so um, that was always my aspiration. And so I grew up in I grew up in St. Paul. Um, we moved to St. Paul when I was in like fourth grade from like Bloomington, and so previously we lived in apartments. Um, my stepdad's uncle had passed and then we bought their house. And so I went from Bloomington, which was still diverse. Um, and I went from like living in apartments and going to school in like West Bloomington to living in St. Paul in like fourth grade. And so it was, um, man, it was culture shock immediately. Do you live in Frogtown or where'd you live? Uh, I'm a Midway kid. Okay. And so I grew up, uh, Pascal Edmund. And okay. so, um, you know, what's so funny is like, uh, I went from kind of being, you know, a knucklehead in like West Bloomington to getting dropped in St. Paul. And it was like culture shock. I was like, man, these kids are really, really advanced, you know? And I, I, I went to Hancock elementary that first year and I was around kids in like, um, just the, the, everything, the school, like I was ahead of them in, in, in the school so, like, I didn't even have to pay attention. I was like, "This we, we did this two years ago," but then I was I was learning kind of uh, to navigate the social aspect of it, and I was like, "Man, these kids! These so kids you, are teaching me all types of craziness." This you is know. good. This is good. So you came in. You were kind of academically advanced. Yeah. But socially, you had some learning. You had some uh, oh, catching yeah. up to do. Yeah, not only because the kids were tougher and more, um, yeah, I don't know, visceral or in their sociology, their yeah. uh, everything. Uh, it, it was just, it was it was shock initially, and then I was like, oh, I can, you, you know, like I'm gonna catch up. Yeah. yeah, no, I was like, 
man, they're teaching me all types of stuff. And I was like, we're in trouble every day. What, you did, know? They, what did they teach you at Pascal and Edmund and what you did? Um, I, I think. What kind I, of trouble did you get in? Lots, lots. You know, uh, the lucky, I think the lucky thing for me is like, I never took, I, ne- I never took pleasure in making somebody else feel bad. But I also like, uh, I was certainly like a spirit of the law guy. And yeah. so I went through, um, I went through life not being challenged by the school, but being smart enough to know that like, if I do the upper level classes, they're going to give me all of this homework and then I'm going to have to spend all of my time doing that. And that's not something I want to do either. And so I didn't, I didn't need to prove like I'm smart enough to do that because then I'd, I'd have to work really, really hard to be as smart as like the smartest kids. So instead, I was like, I, I can do enough here to where they don't kick me out of the school, and then I can learn about people, right? Because I've always been fascinated by people. And so um, St. Paul w- was really good because I got to be around and grow up around every single um, type of person that is here, right? I grew up with Hmong kids. I grew up with Ethiopian kids, Somali kids. I grew up with black kids. I grew up with Hispanic kids. Um, and I grew up with even white kids from St. Paul, which kind of is different than white kids from Bloomington or suburb kids or even my own family. And so I spent my entire upbringing in St. Paul kind of having free roam of the city because my mom worked a lot. My stepdad worked a lot. And so I kind of didn't have like the, the boundaries that other people did. And so my ex- entire experience growing up is I was kind of just free in the world and I got to pay attention to what was going on. And for me, I look back on that now and being a police officer and, and a lot of the kids that I'm dealing with kind of come from a same situation that I did where, um, at home you have people struggling with the same adversities that were happening in my house. So you you're out in the world and then you're kind of in the wind, you know, which direction the wind blows. And so it depends on the group of friends, depends on um, what takes place. And the difference, I think, between teenagers when I was uh, growing up in St. Paul and teenagers right now is probably guns. And so certainly saw them, certainly got shot at when I was a kid. Who didn't get shot at when they were? A kid? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. No, I, I I'm mean, just joking. Well, St. Paul kids. Yeah, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of my friends, to this day, um, you know, we have memories that you know you don't. They're not for public consumption and, and stuff. Just that we've seen, but we also like the stakes and the consequences were certainly different for for my generation, and so. I'm 37 now. I graduated in 2001. And so next year will be my 20-year uh, reunion, assuming COVID's done. Probably not. I don't know. But it'll be my 20-year reunion graduating from Central. Yeah. And so um, it, it's, it's an interesting thing for me because I still feel like a jerk teenager all the time. Like, I don't feel like... Uh, I'm an old guy until people make me feel like an old guy. And I, I certainly like, I'm not far enough disconnected from, uh, what I remember from growing up. And so when I deal with teenagers nowadays, 
I can certainly empathize and I can certainly put myself in my own experiences kind of in their shoes. But the difference for them is, is, and there's a lot of differences, but um, the stakes are totally different. You know, when I, when I would have a problem with a kid and I did, right, I'm stubborn, I'm, I'm Irish uh, and I'm willing to have conflict. If, you know, if I've decided it's, it's righteous, then I'm willing to have the conflict. But the worst I had to worry about is taking the wrong end of a fight, mm-hmm. you know, or them seeing me with their friends, which usually makes you more courageous when you have the numbers on your side and then having to fight a couple of different kids and then pick myself up and, you know, dust off my pride and, and go about my day. And, and our teenagers now, um, they have social media and they have access to firearms and their level of conflict, their level of violence makes it so that if you end up on the wrong end of one of these things, you're giving away your whole life, whether it's to prison or whether it's to the graveyard. Hmm. And um, I started working for Ramsey County in the jail in 2009. And so I got to see kind of the first generation of gangs come through and, and do their first like being held accountable by the legal system. And so when you get locked up either in the jail, you're awaiting trial or you've just been arrested and you haven't been charged. Um, and then when you're locked up in the workhouse, so I worked both. I worked at the LEC downtown as a correctional officer, and then I worked at the uh, Ramsey County Workhouse, which they call the uh, Ramsey County Correctional Facility now. And so people go there when you're sentenced to less than a year. If you get a year and a day, you go to St. Cloud, and you're in the prison system. When you go to Ramsey County Correctional Facility, you could have a five-year sentence, but they're only sending you for six months or eight months. And so I got to watch a whole generation of St. Paul kids, teenagers, that were participating in this gang violence specifically, um, come through and do their first introduction to the criminal justice system and to be incarcerated. And it was interesting for me because um, I would have inmates say to me, uh, you're different than these guys or those guys. And so a lot of times that's grooming or whatever they, they want you to not enforce the rules or, you know, they're trying to make you feel a certain type of way so that sure, they can manipulate you. But the other part was I was having them, um, talk to people about whoever, have you ever heard of this person? And so a lot of the kids that I grew up with, a lot of the people that I have relationships with, um, they, these younger people are coming from the same families. And so, you know, they could recount the tales of me being with people or being friends with people. And so then it kind of changed the dynamics of it. And it, uh, I think it benefited me not because they were going to get anything from me because um, I always thought like the reason I'm in there is to make it safe for the entire pod, right? You have a pod of inmates. And so the reason I'm enforcing the rules is not to be a jerk or be whatever. It's because when you're incarcerated and you lose those freedoms, you're depending on that person because you don't have the ability to make yourself safe to a point. Like obviously you have to protect yourself and you have to defend yourself and you got incarcerated for something you did. But you know, 
if if I find a knife on a guy, that's not that's a knife that he's not going to be able to use on a guy he's into it with, and he's not going to be able to use it on an officer. So that's why I would search through their property, despite the hostility or whatever the pushback that you get. And I did that not to, you know not to mess with guys, and I think I was able to convey that and then show it with my actions that I'm not going out of my way to be a jerk to you. What I'm doing is you're in a situation where you don't control a lot and I better be good at my job. Otherwise something bad could happen. And, and I, I still think that about police work. Um, I still do that to, to this day. You know, I, I have relationships with our customers. And so we did, we did, uh, the gun violence initiative. They brought in the people from New York that are, um, the experts at it. And when we talked through all of the aggravated assaults and the homicides and, all of this violence in St. Paul, what you can track it back to is like 5% or 10% of the population doing 90% of the violence, right? And so this is like, it's like a social contract when you participate in these gangs. And then not only are you saying you're willing to do violence to other people, but then also you're putting yourself in harm's way just by um, identifying yourself or promoting yourself or participating in this. And so it's the same people. And so when we deal with the same kids over and over, when we deal with the same issues in the same spots in different neighborhoods in St. Paul, when I'm searching their car and I find a gun, bad day for them. And they know it's a bad day, but I'm also saying to them, once I find that gun and you're, you know, and they're going to jail, I'm saying maybe it's good I found this because uh, 10 minutes later, you can mess around and take two lives, right? That's what they say when you do a murder take two lives. You take the person's life and then you give yours away to the system. Do they know that when they're going in? They know that going into it? Yeah. I mean, if that's the language they use. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's it's interesting because you, you certainly, like, there's individuals, right? And so um, I think police officers get sensitive about painting everything with a broad brush, right? And so, so do, so do uh, the gang kids, too. They want to differentiate. They'll say, you know, I only this because they're trying to harm me or they're, yeah. you know, that guy right there is the guy you should be going after. Right. But there's a social contract when you participate in, in the gang, when you um, promote yourself as something, you're saying that for a purpose. And then also people are going to hold you to whatever that is. And so uh, I'm really lucky to have come in the generation before like the social media yeah. to a point like I was a young person and we had MySpace, but like Facebook and Snapchat and all of the social media that the kids have at their disposal. Um, it puts them in a really tough spot because you're telling the world what you want them to know about yourself. And it, and if, you're promoting yourself as something and then you're putting it out there for people to consume and process and believe or not believe, then you put yourself in danger. Does do the kids, or I call them kids, I said call them kids, I don't know if that makes sense, but if they, um, if, if they, is it, it seems like they might feel like it's inevitable that they're going to go to prison or die. Yeah. And um, I remember this one deal where a guy was escaped with handcuffs on. And um, we caught him. And 
you know, like, why'd you do that and all that? And it was like, I just wanted one more, you know, 10 more minutes of freedom. It was like, he, he just felt like all that mattered was just the immediate freedom. He didn't really plan to get, a, thought he'd get away with it and all that. And, or else even sometimes where um, I get the impression that they think that um, it's only a matter of time before the cops just come out of the sky and send them back to prison for whatever reason. So might as well rip it up while I'm waiting. Is that uh, like like there's like they don't see the real cause and effect? Or I'm thinking maybe I'm wrong about that. No, I uh, I no, I think you're right on it. I think one of the things promoted is that you live you live in this moment. The only the only moment that's promised to you is this one. Um, and then they promote that through themes and right and and culture. You're saying gang members promote it. Yeah. Because, I mean, in the larger culture, sometimes people are schooled and because of problems with anxiety and life problems, live in the moment, live in the moment. And I was thinking, you know, as a cop, some of the people that live in the moment are the people at Snelling and St. Anthony just uh, begging for money and, and trying to just stay high all day. Yeah. And some of the gang members, they're living in the moment, too, and that's not all. That's obviously the other extreme. For sure. No, I... Um yeah, and I and I and I think, in general, pe- a lot of people are trying to escape moments, right? And so, you know, when you look at somebody as a drunk or uh, they're a drug addict or they're whatever it is, they're they're running away from the thing that probably needs to be addressed, right? And so, people talk about hitting rock bottom. Well, hitting rock bottom is probably dealing with the thing that you've known you've always had to deal with, and so I think. For our young people, they have so much promoted to them that there's there's no future in it. And so then they look at it and it affects about every asset uh, facet of their life, right? If you tell a kid, um, do your homework, go to school, you can be anything in the world, right? Yeah. But he lives in chaos right. and all of his adults are, are doing... Um, negative behaviors or they're they're being victimized right okay. people always say uh people that victimize people have been victimized and and so you see it you see it in the houses and so i was just talking about kind of just the world in general right because we're talking about um sending more social workers into the world we're talking about having police not deal with all of the stuff police are asked to deal with and and so when people ask me about policing in this moment when they talk about policing in general i always say like the the thing that affects cops the most is when you go into a house and you see how children are living and one you can't do anything about it two um there's there's not the resources to change it and you have to walk away from that house and leave those children in that condition with their life circumstances and then you know even the darker thing you're like man, I'm going to deal with this kid after he's been, he goes through what he goes through in life, and then he's probably going to push it forward onto other people and become somebody that I deal with in the police realm. And and so, you know, it's it's hard to say to kids, don't act, think, be for now, because you're going to give away the right. future when right now in the moment, like, Everything has to be instant gratification because they're all survival kids. It's tough. I be honest, I grew up a survival kid. 
Okay, so so that's my point is that yeah, for many they grow up with they can imagine their future life where maybe some of the kids you're talking about and the gang members, yeah. they don't see a big distant future. Yeah. So that they, they um, so they live in that survival. But say you're saying that you were that kid as well. For sure, at home. And then I would get, I would be able to escape right, and so like I would be a little I, what. I, so at home, I was certainly was a survival kid, and then I had people invest in me, and so like I had what probably I should have with, you know, when I would go weekends with my uncle and aunt, so I could see it, and so it wasn't like I had nobody, and so I'm certainly like thankful to have that, and so it, it changed my circumstances in my life completely, Yeah. but then I also know what it's like to survive my home, um, and so, be, because of everything, you know, I emancipated myself at 17. Uh, I petitioned for custody of my sisters and, and was granted with my, got, with my aunt being the guardian at Lytum. Um, and, I, and I had to take my mom to court and go through that. And, it, and it's not because my mom's not a great lady. It's just because of the circumstances of my home. And I, and, and I, I wasn't even doing it for me. I was doing it for my sisters. And sure. so... My sisters are 10 years younger than me. And so once they were born, I kind of realized that, you know, I'm going to have to do more than like a regular sibling would. And that's the same thing I'm seeing in houses when I, when I go there is that you have one person that kind of bears the burden of the adults and the household and all of it. And so like when I got to be a cop, all of a sudden I'm walking in, it's familiar. Right. Things are familiar to me because of the chaos, you mean? Yeah. And just my life experience. Yeah. You know, I think, too, that I'm glad you brought that up about the kind of heartache that cops feel of seeing it and then being and then having to walk away with it because it's overwhelming. Like cops know that a lot of kids don't sleep in beds with a bed frame and bed spring and a mattress. No, they're lucky if they sleep on a mattress on the floor. They um, watch TV until they and. um Music videos until they fall to sleep exhausted. Um, they sometimes don't even look up when the cops are in the room because they're just so accustomed to it. It's just not a big deal. Yeah. Desen- desensitization is crazy. Yeah. And um, and then you looked at it from the cop point of view of seeing that. And that's very interesting. I don't think we even talk about it as cops, about walking away from those circumstances, feeling just discouraged or... The problem just seems so overwhelming. So you do the little you can with what you got, maybe. For sure. Well, and and I would take. And an, another reason I, um, I identify with you know our gang kids is like, I would take what wasn't going right in my house and then I would inflict it kind of on the world. And so, um, you know, I wasn't doing violence towards people, but I was being a jerk. Right. And so like, uh, go to junior high and you're a teenager and teenagers, I think are jerks in general. Cause you're going through like the worst. I think we all agree. Like teenage years are awkward and you're trying to figure out and, and everything. And then I'm in the classroom and I can do all of the work. I can get the grades, but I'm disrupting the class. Right. And I'm disrupting the class. Not because the teacher's a jerk. I'm doing it because I'm, acting out and the reason i'm acting out is because of stuff having nothing to do with school yeah and so then they're kicking me out right and so uh you know i i went all through junior high 
uh, getting kicked out because you get the attention. Plus, I get it on my terms, right? And so it's like teenage manipulation, right? I showed that guy. Uh, I'm going to do it on my own terms, right? Like you have all of the elements of like trying to transition from whatever a young person is to an adult. And then when I got to high school, I had this whole like junior high career of getting kicked out of class and being a jerk and fighting it out with this administrator. Um, and my first high school class at Central, uh, they had us take a test, right? I'm in science. And so the hill that I was going to die on is this is science. This test has math on it or something. And so I finish it in five minutes and then I'm, you know, disrupting. And the teacher kicks me out immediately, right? He's not going to, whatever. I get down to the administrator and he goes, man, you're an overachiever. Huh? You lasted like 20 minutes of high school before I got to meet you. And so then he calls the administrator at Ramsey and uh, justified, you know, I made that life, that guy's life hell right he's an adult i'm a kid he's an educator i'm one of the ones he can't teach right and so i i hear the phone call and the guy just destroys me and, and justified right like i deten they're basically like you just come to detention every day and i'm like well my friends are here anyways you're helping me out right because i'm you know i'm so smart he's so dumb and so when when he has this conversation with my administrator, my administrator hangs up the phone and I was like, well, he just threw me away, right? I'm, they're going to kick me out of the school. And the administrator was like, that guy doesn't like you much. How are we going to work this out? And for four years, this administrator, um, he would ask me about me. He would figure it out. I mean, we worked together for four years and he got me to graduation. Well, can you tell, say his name? Ken Hansen. Uh Invited him to my wedding, still yeah. talk to him now and then, but like truly like changed my life, right? And so for him, uh, he's always going to collect the checks, right? But for him, there was something in him that saw like, I want to affect the world. And, and, you know, he'd have to explain to you whatever it is, but he's taken me from kicked out that first day through four years of high school and it was you know i didn't make it easy i never you know i'd do it the hard way um but i had you know in my life i've had so many people invest in me that aren't the traditionals um i was in a program called upper bound at central where it's uh first generation college students um students of color immigrant students whatever it is to try to bridge the gap not having um the same set of circumstances that you would have with mom and dad in like a functional home and trying to get them to college. So uh teacher nominated me for that, said uh, he can do all the work. He can't ever get to class. And so I don't think he's a bad kid. I think there's other stuff and he needs stuff, right? And so that, that teacher could have thrown me away. Instead, he put me in touch with these people and they were kind of my adults throughout the whole process. So I'd spend summers away from St. Paul, which is really good for me, probably, uh, on St. Olaf College in the dorms in a group um, doing, like, prep for the next year, but that also, like, counted towards credits. And so I probably missed, like, 100 classes of every class for every semester of my entire high school career and and got a diploma. And it wasn't... Because it wasn't because they had to give me the diploma. It wasn't because I did the work. Because I would do the work, just not come to class. Because 
uh, it just didn't work for me because I my brain didn't work at the same time as other students, and so like I would be you have to get to the next thing. You have to uh, my attention has to be captured, otherwise I'm gonna whatever I'm gonna do whatever. Did you do you remember when you internalized it? So you had some adults. What was the teacher, the administrator again? It's Ken like, Hansen. Ken Hansen. So you had him and maybe others who saw through it, didn't meet you with might, with might necessarily, were actually some curious uh, curiosity about you, and they yeah. um, spoke to you in a different way. Did, what, did, did you eventually just internalize that? I mean, you're 37 years old, you're married with a, a wife and kids, and you have a house yeah. and, a, and good standing in your job, so you haven't always relied on other adults to... Uh, when did you internalize it? Um, Do you remember that, or does that make sense? I kind of kind of took it on yourself. Here's what I'm saying: I kind of always have, right? Like, um, because I had those relationships, I've always, I've always understood the relationships, right? Uh, loyal to a fault. I've always had people, for whatever reason, um, not having to, no obligation, um, invest in me when they when they didn't have to, right? Uh, and so I've, I've always, I've, that's the pressure I feel. I don't feel pressure from this. I, I feel pressure. <clears throat> no COVID. I didn't. Uh, I feel pressured to do right by people because they've invested in me. Right. And, and that pressure has always driven me to make good on my opportunities. Yeah. And, and so, um, but I've always, I, I've always been confident in, in myself. I've always been very interested in how people respond be, uh, because I'm, I'm a lot to deal with. What's, what's your best uh, contribution to the police department? What's the best talent that you, that you give us? Um, you, you know, I think, I think for me, showing up and having people respond to me it's not something I control. It's their response. You mean, you mean interacting on the street with? Yeah. Uh, and especially since we go to places where terrible stuff has happened. Yeah. And they certainly, people certainly don't need to be reasonable. Um, if, if you have terrible stuff happen, at that point, you're, you're going to be in your emotions. All of the emotions. Yeah. And I think that they're justified. Because we do that, right? Something happens to somebody. I can't imagine what you're going through. But those are those are like that's the people I need to talk to me. That that's the people I need. To so be how do you to. how do you approach that? When they, how do you uh, get them to talk? How do you convert or how do you get them to talk to you? Just re, uh, I think you got to read the people. Like d- depending on the person in front of you, you you have to figure out what it is to get them to like connect to the thing that you're trying to accomplish. I'm guessing you also don't you acknowledge that that you. Um, they're in this emotion that you acknowledge. I think you didn't exactly say it that you don't try to talk them out of it. No, you you, you actually uh, to use the term validate it. I guess. Yeah, that goes bad. What's that? that? It goes bad when you try to explain to somebody what they shouldn't be doing. Exactly, and you know when they're justified in doing what whatever it is. Well, even I when I think of the EAP job and working with officers, and if you want to build trust with officers, even from a mental emotional well being point of view, it's. One thing you don't want to do is try to talk them out of the things they think or know they need to yeah. survive. And as soon as you start doing that, um, I think that's where maybe outsiders sometimes 
miss the mark or maybe outsiders that are really good with cops, they get to understand that part of them. And I'm guessing you do the same thing too. It's just your language, you're allowing them to kind of um, settle into themselves a little bit. And Yeah. Uh, and, and I had it taught to me. You had a what? I, I, so I had, I had that kind of taught to me um, sneakily. I had, a, I had a, an acting teacher at Central. Her name's Jan Mandel. And she spent an entire lifetime using theater um, as social activism and everything. And so, you know, she would kind of collect up the broken kids and then give them an outlet to, like, express the things that maybe they didn't. And, and even for me, it, it's interesting because uh, we're in such a... In, um, it's such a weird time, but like people would just look at me and be like, you're just a white guy. Right. And so like on view, that's totally correct. Right. It, but when I, when I showed up to this acting class, um, she was like, I can sense that you have all of the survival kid stuff. You have anger, you have aggression, you have all of this stuff, but where is your vulnerability? Wow. And so like, and so she would she called the acting studio the safe space and the safe space is really interesting because you have to take w what your world is in that moment you have to take your life you have to take what you are as a person and you have to leave that at the door and it and it's like a social contract with the other kids in the class with the teacher with the actors that come in and and so once once you feel a part of something, then you have to make choices, right? And so, like, um, I would spend all day still navigating Central High School and my my relationships and all of whatever it is to be a teenager and be a tough guy and, and all of it. But once we were in there, um, it was about the acting, it was about the work, but it, it, it also involved, like, allowing yourself to be vulnerable, and I and I found that that like changed my life, because I I I didn't care what other people like thought of me on the grand scale. Obviously, like there's pressure and peer pressure and all that, but I allowed myself to be vulnerable. Then I learned about being vulnerable, right? And it's really really tough for me um, because of like relationships, and so um, I I think back to like ninth grade when when I got to like not be the the thing that I put up for everybody as a defense, right? Because everybody has their like coping mechanisms and defense and all of that. And so I made all these really great relationships that I still have today with the people there because they kind of went through the same process, right? So it's like, it's theater, but it's therapy, right? And so then once, once I realized I could still be the person that I am, but also be vulnerable, I was giving myself a, a gift because uh, it's exhausting, right? Uh, being mad is exhausting. Um, having all this conflict, it's exhausting. And so like being vulnerable or like allowing yourself to like let down the guard is like the aha moment, I think, for a lot of people. And they just get to it whenever they get to it. Well, it makes sense that a survival kid or a wounded kid, there's no way they're going to want to get near that vulnerability necessarily. No. So the genius of this teacher and the timing that you were in, perfect fit. Yeah. And that was so pivotal. I, 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 change, change everything. Huh. 
change change everything because see that's not that's so that's not surprising but that's just um that's not what i expected to hear yeah it makes perfect sense yeah it, it changed everything because i i had friends i had friends going to jail um i had friends um being harmed i had friends being killed right and so like i i went through kind of this a similar thing the other part too like because because I was like a, a white kid back back in my day of being a teenager, you couldn't even be in the gang because it, it was just a gangs were a different thing there. It was either it was family or it was it was really cultural. And now uh, there's been an evolution of that. And so like I experienced gangs. I saw it firsthand. I was I had friends that their their family it was it was a gang but it was also like family like this is what our family does and so i i got to see it from that perspective which i also think is helpful like being a cop now because this the same guy that does all of this terrible stuff when i worked in the jail i was able to realize he did all of this terrible stuff and and that's things he should be held accountable for but that's still somebody's father that's still somebody's brother that's still somebody that somebody cares about that did all of this terrible stuff and so they still have these relationships. They still exist. Like just because you get locked up, just because you get sent to prison doesn't mean you no longer exist in people's lives. Like uh, quite the opposite. And then when you see like 90% of the people, no matter what they've done to other people and been found guilty and been sentenced, are going to come back into the world. You know, that's why I've had some glimpses into that too just when you um – when you're in the household, so say a gang member, and he's pretty tough and pretty hard, but it's his birthday, or he's around his mom, or I mean, you know, once while you take him to jail or kick him loose at a at a traffic stop, and you're taking their car because it's not theirs or whatever, and you could tell they were frightened, mm -hmm. and and uh, and scared. Yeah. Um, what about this? I don't know where it fits, but um, you're talking about. You know, you've been in these houses, you've got a huge antenna for it and recognize it, that they have this other life as well, and they mean something else to other people. Um, I was in a house once that got shot up, and um, we're finding all the bullet holes and all that, and one was above a crib, and on the, on the, next to the crib was a picture of little, their, their children in these kind of glamour shots, and they were holding Glocks, the little kids. Yeah. And I, was, and I didn't know if it was, it was like, just normalizing I, mean, I can't imagine it yeah i mean i but it seemed like it was part of what was important to, i don't know how to how to describe it so i i heard a really smart term um it was by a a guy that's a rapper and so he's i think he's albino and he's a muslim and he's that atmosphere or is it, it um, so brother ali brother ali i heard him at fourth street station once smart guy yeah um and I, and i really i really um art is art right everybody likes their music but yeah. it's art but a, a lot of artists um are able to convey um things they they sure. notice in culture but then also life right they speak life to art whatever their art is and he got interviewed by like the city pages and in the city pages he talked about cultural currency and he talked about the importance of cultural currency, and I and I latched onto it immediately because it it made sense to me. And so, if for young people, if in a culture, um, you make the currency a certain set of traits or a certain set of 
ideals or ideology or, or whatever whatever it is, but you, you place value in it, then that's going to filter to the people in that culture that, that are affected by it. And so specifically he was talking about um, um, when you promote images that you got to be the toughest guy or you got to be the most violent or you got to be the most promiscuous or you got to whatever it is. And the things that you're promoting are like fool's gold, right? It's negativity. It's not reality. But when you promote those things, people latch onto that stuff. And so then I fast forward to 2020. And so music, culture, everything is changed from when I was a young person. And so then I, I have to understand whatever the cultural currency is for these kids and what they're affected by. Um, not because I want to, because I don't, I don't enjoy the music. I've gotten to that point where like I grew up with, I believe like the, I grew up in the nineties. And so we had like the best, in my opinion, <laughs> rap music, rock music, R and B, like all, all of the music, basically all the genres, country music. Like I believe that I had the best, uh, 10 years for that. Right. And other people will disagree with me, and, and, and also it's like what you like. But then I look at what rap music is nowadays to what I grew up with. I grew up with Tupac and Biggie and Outkast and Scarface and UGK, and I grew up with people that, like, the message mattered. And now what, what I see the message is, it's all fool's gold to me, right? And so, like, a lot of, a lot of what's popular now has to do with um, committing murders for nothing, uh, being willing to kill your own friends. I mean, like, if I could, if I could, like, play a rap video for you and then diagnose it on what I believe it to mean, I'd probably be eighty percent accurate, which is good for an old guy. Um, but it's also my business, right? I'm in the business of uh, intel. My currency is is intelligence. It's knowing the kids that are participating in this, knowing why they're participating in it, being able to identify groups that uh, come under an umbrella together and have decided to be in gangs together. I have to explain all of that in court. I have to tie together why somebody lost their, their person and why it's gang related. So I, I gang expert witness te testimony. Uh, but even before that, I have to watch rap videos and then decipher the code because they're not going to explain it to me. They're never going to go, you know, Officer Dean, here's how the gang works and sit me down. They're never going to do that. So I have to, like, understand the code. I have to translate. And the messaging to these kids is unbelievable. And, and so then it makes sense to me that they believe that life is war for them. Mm-hmm. Every day I have to have my gun because I'll die without my gun. Right. If I, if my friend shoots his gun and I don't shoot my gun, then I've failed. I haven't lived up to the thing that I've built myself up to be. But then w once they kill a person and you're like, man, it wasn't, it didn't have to, there didn't have to be finality because the slight was not right. worth the end result. But that's not understanding the cultural currency. That's driving it, right? Say it again? That's not understanding the cultural currency that's driving that behavior. So if you say you didn't have to do that, 
but they did have to do it. One hundred percent, they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and but that you know what that is? That's judgment, yeah. right? That's passing judgment on it when I'm not in it. Right. But I also but I also think for for the kids, it's not real until it's real. Yeah. Right. Like like uh, people look at Facebook and they laugh at it. Like this is silly. Right. But for us, like Facebook will get you killed. So I think you um, took a hat. I think you answered the question I asked a half hour ago. And Probably. That is what, what was. Because you let me talk so long. No, no. You're th- supposed to guide me. No, I'm, I'm making the point that oh. it was a long answer. Oh, sure. Um, and that was what your best contribution, your biggest contribution. So you were talking about understanding that culture. Yeah. Um, being able to testify in court and explain it. Also, another talent or skill you have is you recognize names and faces and makes all those connections because that's you're known for that right yeah yeah i know that even when you're a patrol officer i knew that about you that you you know you said five percent of whatever is is committing all these 80 percent or whatever the crimes you know most of that five percent right yeah and 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 also that's um i was i was hypersensitive i think to getting to the gang unit so early in my career because um, people have laid out, you know, you want to be a patrol officer, you want to work all three districts, like the history of uh, how it had been done. Right. And so when it came time for me to um, put in for the gang unit, I knew I had developed relationships up there and been helpful to them. I, I knew that um, through my work, people knew that I was able to do this. But I, I went to my FTOs, I went to my sergeants, I went to my commanders and I, I just said, here's the thing I'm thinking about, but I, I want to make sure that I do it the right way. Right. Um, and I do it too early. No. And I think everybody is like, you need to go. And I think even the patrol cops were like, you need to go because, um, you're pretending out here. Well, (laughs) not pretending, but you're, you're out here doing, just waiting, doing too much you're doing too much. Uh, because we have all these calls and so especially like senior patrol officers like if if you're taking people to jail because people talk to you and you actually like right. can take a guy to jail yeah. then you're gone right and yeah. I need you to take these calls because I don't want to right, right? and then um, and, or, that's, and that's part of patrol work is just yeah. disposing of calls because you're swimming while well, and you're swimming upstream right depending on the, the time of the year, you have all these calls and you have no officers. And right. so like me and my partner, we would be at jail or, you know, I'd be writing a report and it'd be a lot more than. Right. Cause it'd be a big family tree. Yeah. It'd be like uh, when I talk and run on sentences, you know, yeah. it'd be a half hour. Yeah, right? all, all, all cap letters. <laughs> you had the cap lock on. Yeah. And so I think, um, I think even they supported it. Like you should be there. And then I always looked at it like, if I get this opportunity, I'm gonna make good on the opportunity, right? Because uh, people invested in me, people believed in me. Um, I had people in the gang unit. I had people that I worked for. They all supported it, right? And so it's kind of the theme of my life. I had I had lots of people be good to me. Even Commander Frazier, like my first year as a cop, um, the, like the best advice you get from cops, right? They'll say, when you're a new guy. Stay under the radar. Well, never in my life have I been under the radar. In fact, like I, I probably dangerous territory. Yeah, I'm just that guy, right? Like, like immediately. So, like my first year as a cop, uh, everything. 
you know, the, the rumor mill, all the stuff that you don't want when you're a new cop, like we get it. And then my partner would be like, come on. And I was like, I didn't do it. And he'd be like, I know, but come on. Right. So, cause he was living it with me. Yeah. And so I had commander Frazier. Um, he called me one night and he was like, you know, cause he's a watch commander. He's like, man, you do great work, but man, you got to work it out with these other cops. And I'm like, what am I, you know, what am I supposed to do? I was like, I was like, I'm just, I go to the call and then a guy needs to get arrested and, and he's getting arrested. I, I don't know. He's like, well, I'll find your FTOs. And so, uh, I said, I, I talked to them and they're like, you didn't do it or whatever. He's like, you just got to put your head down and push through it. And so it was interesting because I think he was trying to be helpful, but he was also saying to me, don't do the thing I did. It's interesting that people do that. Right. right. Because when I, when I was around commander Frazier, I'd watch him do better police work than any cop I'd seen. Right. And it's because he can't turn it off. Right. And, and people talk about turning it off or not getting involved or yeah. whatever, whatever the thing is. Right. Cause you get involved and then they're going to, you know, or over invested or whatever. Yeah. You're going to end up in trouble. Right. Because the mystery guy's going to, you know, they'll view it this way or whatever. <laughs> um, Cause that's, that's a thing that happens in cop world. But I always thought like, if I get the opportunity to be a police officer, if I get the opportunity to be helpful, if I get the opportunity to go places, I want to make good on that. And I want to make good on that in every call. I want to make good on it in every situation. And so I think I was really fortunate to have people invest in me and give me this opportunity to work in the gang unit because I get to have the conversations with these kids. You know, after we make the scene safe, I'm on these kids a lot. Yeah. And so I'll, you know, my relationship with them is I'm their police and they know that like they, uh, it'll be crazy dangerous for them. And then they'll see us and it's weird yeah. because we've made that relationship. It changes the dynamics, but it also, it's bad for them too. Cause then they can't lie about who they are. They can't lie about why stuff happened. I mean, they can just not talk to us, but you're, you can't sell me the same story if I didn't know who you are, why somebody was shooting at you, why the cops would have found you, yeah. why, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, you really complicate their lives. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. They're relieved, and then they're also frustrated yeah. by yeah. it. Like, why, why are you working today? That's funny. All right, let me, let me do a commercial here. Um, so if you enjoyed this podcast, you might be also interested in the, my book, Good Cop, Good Cop, A Get Healthy, Stay Healthy Guide for Law Enforcement. I cover a lot of topics, none of which we talk about today. <laughs> um, the the idea of the um, Cop Think podcast is why the police do what they do, and Tony, you're delivering that. Um, but the book is a focus on um, officer wellness, and it can be purchased through Amazon. You can also find out more information at goodcopgoodcop.com. All right, let me corral you into something. Um, I haven't had any luck asking you questions. Sorry. Uh, Okay. No, I think, uh, I think it's all good. Um, but one thing is you mentioned the social contract. Um, and the currency thing is super interesting. I have an article that I read about years ago about that topic. I'm going to see if I find it because it, was, it, was, it, it, it illuminated some additional things that you're talking about here. Um, and I, don't, I think that, that the social currency is really what the general public really – so when they say – how could someone do that to someone else? Or it's just so naive because they're not understanding the currency and why that matters so much. And that sometimes as cops, I know that we miss it. We, we, we misinterpret it. 
But one thing is the social contract. What do you think the social con? Can you name? I'm going to do a two-part question and try to get you to try to corral you into it. I'm trying. What, to, I'm trying to focus because I, I want to stay within yeah. the boundaries. Well, it's probably it's probably boring already for me just bringing it up the way I am. But the what is the social contract that the the gang members have? If you can summarize that at all, and what's the social contract that the St. Paul police officers have with each other? Um. So it's interesting with the with the gang members. I think it's evolved, and it and it's it's evolved because of kind of families, right? And so p- previous generations, a lot of it had to do with um, structure in the gang, and um, it it had to do with families being uh, a major. Um, driver into participating in gang life right like uh family business mafia family um crips bloods gangster disciples bogus boys um and now it's there's there's an evolution in saint paul where it's really based upon like neighborhood and neighborhood you grew up in or neighborhood that you have your relationships and then within the actual gang, um, there's been an evolution of that where it's basically like you really can't even trust your own gang because um, of a lot of stuff, you know, uh, mostly not having a stable home. So you're, you're fighting in the streets and then you're fighting at home to survive. And then a lot of people have taken advantage. And so there's a lot of chemical dependency. There's a lot of. Uh, mental health that plays into it especially for like young people and so like the drugs that they're doing are different than drugs that were available in previous generations and so we're seeing um, the contract between them really being like different day to day and so uh, people will be signed up to be in the gang with the guy that they're close to in that moment or the guy that is making the money and has the drugs or even whoever has the vehicle and the ability to take you around or whatever house um, has been made like the the headquarters for whatever is going to happen for that day. Um, and they talk about how there's no loyalty and there's there's no anything. And so it's just like based upon the day and it's really like in the moment that's who your loyalty is. And then the contract is is basically um, it's been evolving to like losing people to gang violence, and so we're seeing gangs be in memory of this person that lost their life to gang violence, and so then people talk about their relationship with that person, and that's why I'm in this. So then you take somebody that lost their life to violence. And you memorialize them and you're kind of able to justify the violence that you do based upon what happened to the person that you cared about or the the person that you had a relationship with. And then they're connecting it to each other. And so we had a kid get killed in the days in parking lot by a gang member from East. And he gets killed after a gang member from East gets killed in Mounds Park. And so then we're, we're seeing all of those gang kids who previously identified themselves as whatever this gang is, then talking about I'm BC gang 
for the kid that gets killed in right. Miles Park. And I'm Looney Land Gang for the kid that gets killed in the Days in parking lot. And so then they're justifying their behavior, their violence, their all of it. They're making their connections and it's like proving themselves it seems it seems within there. It seems almost arbitrary, but it but it isn't when you think of they just are grabbing meaning of some sort. They yeah. just want to connect what they're doing or their life to something that has meaning. Yes. And what's really a close and immediate and actually intense to them and has um, it kind of vibrates is whatever death or destruction is going on. Yes. And then uh, for police, it's it's really interesting because um, as individuals, we've taken an oath and we've taken an oath to have these abilities that regular people don't have in their job. And then we've decided that what comes with that is going towards the danger and being the change in that environment. And we're doing that individually. But then uh, there's other individuals that have signed up for that too. And so I think the thing that is bonding us together is that we need to keep our safe, our, our each other safe, while we're going towards the thing that people runs away from. Right. And so, so, so the listener knows. None of us remember an actual oath. I mean, I know we probably took an oath. Maybe it was it's printed somewhere. None yeah. of us remember it or had to memorize it. At least I'm not aware of it. No. But but you are correct in saying that we took an oath. Yes. Because maybe you didn't even know what that oath was until you were starting to become a police officer in the actual work of playing. You didn't learn it in the academy. You didn't learn it in skills. You were starting to get it on FTO or maybe. And then, yeah, I, I think for, I think for me, I knew what it meant when I signed up, but I had also been in the Marines. So you accepted the oath that you associated with being a police officer. Yeah. Because I'd previously done it when I joined the Marines. So, but what, so summarize what it is. Um, for the, so you said the oath, and that is, I think you kind of said it was, um, okay, so we're going to perform, we're going to behave a certain way when there's a problem and danger. Well, beyond that, it's duty. Okay, so talk about so it. I, so I think for me, um, the, oaths, the oaths that I've made in my life are, are to be faithful to the duty. And what the duty is, is um, preserving order. And, and so even prior to joining the police department, when I, when I signed up for the Marines, I was totally doing it um, because I had messed up college, right? I never wanted to join the military. I, I wasn't a fan of people being in charge of me, obviously. I never showed up to class and... They should have kicked me out and what, you know, but I did that because I needed to make good on the opportunities I was presented. But I also knew the moment that I joined the Marines, um, I have a duty to do what's asked of me and make sure that I uphold my end of the bargain. And, and so that, you know, that could have been uh, going to a country, fighting for my country and losing my life. Um, and, and, I think it's really interesting because 
it's viewed as heroic and, and it is all of those things, but you're also, uh, you're giving up freedoms. I'm purposely giving up freedoms and I'm changing the dynamics of what my life is um, and I'm doing it because of a greater purpose, a purpose other than myself. And, and so when I became a police officer, I knew that that's what comes with it. So when I took my oath, I knew it was um, putting myself in harm's way, um, responding to things that are out of my control and, and taking actions to try to bring it into order. But I also knew that like, it's not what's good for me, it's, it's what's good for uh, the people that I'm dealing with. So this is very helpful because I realized the question is a little bit backwards um, in the sense that we were attracted to the work because we already had ta we, that, that oath that we associate with, with the work, we, already, we were attracted to that oath. 100% it yeah, is. Yeah, so, it's, it's, so it would be not wrong for the public to think the police are somehow converted to this oath when they take it. Okay, now I promise to do this. No, it's be, they were attracted to the work, whether you became a Marine or a cop, because you wanted to serve in that way. And it's not necessarily selfless. Even though there's sacrifice, you, you get something from it. it, it there, there's a, um, a sense of higher purpose. 100% it's a purpose. Yeah. And, and, it, and, it, and be honest, if it's not, if, if, it's but, not, if it's not the purpose, then there's, uh, there's less dangerous ways to make money. Right. There's better maybe fits. And that's why I wish, and this is something that I think, I mean, we didn't talk about, but we're right now we're in the midst of some of the biggest civil unrest that our city has ever experienced. Amazing stuff is going on. Um, and when I reflect on that, I think, how am I not like the people that are causing harm? It seems that they want disorder. That's what they want most, chaos and disorder. Yeah, and, and, it, and it's opportunity. I, it's just literally it's opportunity, but, and, but, and it's different opportunities. But opportunity, in my view, just to, I mean, it's it's not a very big lift to create disorder. No, and wreck stuff, and no. and make unreasonable demands, and then switch your demands and all that. And what I was thinking about how myself and other police officers contrast is we really like order, not because we're so. Um, um, I don't know what it is, but but because order makes sense. Order actually creates freedom for others, or ourselves and others. And um, so it's a very different approach to this. And, and that's what's actually very hard to watch this go on and actually watch the slow progress that, that I was witnessing this happen is just the progress towards greater and greater disorder and what sometimes felt like passive policing in the face of that. Drives me crazy. It's maddening. And it's also, if, if the conclusion is, well, we've rewritten your job description, uh, which happens in certain careers, I think a lot of them are like, okay, that's probably why I don't want to be a police officer anymore because, you know, the, the abuse and all that is one thing, but just the kind of, we're not in the order business anymore. If we're not in the maintaining and, and creating order, the job just isn't that attractive to me. Yeah. Because I don't, I don't like just watching chaos. No, and I, and I see the harm. Like, like I, uh, I see the harm. Um, I think anybody, 
anybody watches somebody be harmed, no matter the circumstance, uh, right. not anybody, but for me personally, sure. to see somebody be harmed, terrible. Even, even I remember growing up in fights, right? You, you have a falling out with a friend and it comes to a fight. And once the initial, whatever it is, wears off, it's all regrets. That's why, they, that's why they say when, whenever two people fight, uh, there's no winners, right? And, and so it doesn't matter the braggadocious nature. It doesn't matter. Once the, once the adrenaline, the euphoria, once you're out of that moment, what do you have? You have regrets. And, and so I, I, see that, I see that with people I arrest. I see that in, um, I see that in young people. I, I see it in this entire situation. No matter, no matter the emotions, no matter how it felt to do whatever, no matter the justification in your mind, uh, these same young people that went and participated in this disorder and created this destruction, they're seeing people cl- have to clean up or they're right. hearing stories about how people worked their entire life, had nothing, the, the same causes, right. and then they've been victimized. And so you know if you participated in that or not, and then that's not... The th- that's not the ideology. It doesn't. It doesn't match up. That's not the narrative, and so, um, and and so I think same thing with police officers, right? Uh, I think we want order, but we also see the cause and effect from mm-hmm. when it goes off the rails, um, w- with people harmed, with families. Like we we get to see all the ugliness, mm-hmm. and that comes from lack of order. That comes from lack of stability. It comes from a lot of different things, but we show up in when it's to that point, and and that's our reality. And so, like a lot of cops say, you'll never know what I see and whatever, but um, that's like what our normal is, and a lot of people become desensitized to that. But I think it's reasonable to be affected by it too. I mean, I I don't know. I that's why I think. I always want to create order. I don't. I don't want to tell you what to believe. I don't want you. To, I don't want to change you as a person. Right. I just don't want you to harm somebody. I don't want somebody to harm you. That's that's the thing I always think. Yeah. Well, I'm just. I'm the same way. I just and and I realized it was since I was a child. I really thought it was important that people didn't park on the sidewalk. Yeah. And people didn't um, just take other people's stuff. Yeah. How it affects them. Yeah. And, and, and just, I really, so that's why policing was so attractive to me because you're in the kind of maintain order. Um, so we're going to have to stop here, but I want to ask you something before, um, first of all, real quick, (laughs) was there something that you thought I was going to ask you coming here that I didn't? Um, It's a really good question. I want to have a really good answer. Okay. Uh, I don't think that I have an answer. I I appreciate the conversation. Okay. Right. Uh, I I think I've listened to the podcast, and that's why I want to participate because yeah. I've I've seen a lot of really good conversations, and I think that you can learn a lot from a conversation, even if it's not the intent. Got it. Well, and I think one thing is um, one thing. If I were to script ahead of time, knowing what I know now, is I like. Um, when cops have these experiences, even obsessions, even compulsions, and they're able to convert it into useful police work. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think I have it in, in some of my role and so the way I view the world and all that. And in a police department, especially our size, 
boy, it's a sweet deal if you be able to convert that into your day job or your night job or afternoon job, meaning kind of what you're doing is taking that some of those talents. So that's really fun. Um, so, so I talked before. Did well, you go let ahead? Me, let me say this. Uh, I, I think, um, I, and I can speak to this, right? I think the the reason that you have such a positive effect on the department is you found something that you can disarm people with, and then in disarming them, you're able to help them, right? And so obviously, like that drives you, but then. Beyond that, um, you found the thing that maybe will give you the most fulfillment, and so that is something that like people see without without knowing deep into the mind of Sergeant Casey, right? Like without them even having like a close relationship with you, and I and I can say um, I sought you out. Um, for EAP services because I believed that you could be helpful to me without knowing that you could. And, and it had to do with maybe this is a thing that you should be doing. And so I, I think I'm very fortunate in, in that I found a thing and then all I want to do is be helpful to people. And I think people get that. Like initially, uh, maybe Tony Dean thinks he's so smart and whatever, like there's that barrier. Right. But then, like, once people interact with me, all I want to do is help them to bring justice to the people that they got cases on or make their job easier. And then, obviously, you have to listen to me talk a lot to do that. And so, like, that's the discomfort. But you're not going to get uh, you're, you're not going to get probably the things that you thought you would get from me. And so, like, if if people didn't invest in you um, by your approach or didn't have like a faith in what you do maybe we'd have less people um, get the resources that they need. Because sure. I, I, to know you, I think that that's the thing that you care about. Well, I do care about it. I think you, you uh, captured it by saying disarming. I know I can be powerfully disarming. Yeah. Um, and I was that, that way as a paramedic. I was that way as a kid working in a grocery store. I was that way and, and, and as a cop and now as the EAP guy. And... When you say disarming, what does that mean to cops as a tactical? It makes people vulnerable and, and all that. I, I'm not making people vulnerable. However, um, I think my ability to be disarming is something I really leverage. And, and I like to think, dear God, make this true, that I do it for good. 100%. But yeah, I know, but I just you, don't want to... You disarm them. I, Maybe you get them to stop the whatever. Absolutely. Right? Because... Uh, Cops are their own worst enemy. And, and also that it's just how normal and natural life struggles are yeah. and how much we need each other. And if you can find someone that you trust to give you some guidance, that's some good stuff. In my defense, though, I want to say a couple of things. One is you admitted that you, you, you acknowledged that you sought me out. Yeah. Um, so we don't, I'd never acknowledge that otherwise. You're the only guy, I don't know if you know this, that just came to the door and knocked on the door. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and that's, you know what, that's... That was cool. I mean, that was like, this guy is different than other cops. He just like, I have confidence Brian will be there, and I knock on the door, and I open it, and there you are. Yeah, that's my personality. That's, I know it is. I, uh, I, I try to... <laughs> I try, I, I try to... Um, I try to think it through, right? But I just seek people out. 
You do, and it and it worked uh, for a number of reasons for you, but it um, yeah. it was also your your style too. It's like I got to see this guy's face. I ain't gonna talk to him on the phone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one thing I want to say because this is an opportunity as far as the EAP job is, um, uh, it's probably the biggest job I've had in my life, and probably the most challenging, and the one that um, gathers up every bit of life experience I've had up to this point. So that's a huge blessing. And, and it, I'm almost afraid to say it, but I have a lot of clarity about it. I have a lot of clarity about how to proceed. Um, and so that's a, really, uh, that's a really wonderful experience. However, I want to say, um, when I was uh, a patrol cop, that's all I wanted to do, and I wanted to be good at that. And when I was an investigator, that's all I wanted to do and be good at that, um, which I wasn't very good at. Um, and when I was a patrol boss, that's all I wanted to do, and I just wanted to be good at that. And now the EAP director, and that's one thing I don't think the police department understands about me, and I'll just say it, is I'm good at whatever I am doing. Believe it. I'm dedicated. So, so whether... So like uh, someone said the other day, oh, you're so passionate about EAP. And I said, I don't think I'm actually that passionate about it. I think I'm skilled. I think i am got my head in the game. Um, but no matter where the police department would use me, I was the same way when I was a paramedic. I, so I, I'm just that, I'm just going to say that about myself. I'm just... Um, no, I, 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 the responsibility... I try to, I try to do whatever I'm doing. The responsibility is a privilege. Right. The responsibility is a privilege. And then you, you protect the, the opportunity. Well, I remember one time I did this talk on excited delirium. Um, because my, and, and people would come up to me, you must really love that subject. You're so, and I'm thinking, not really. I just, it was my time to deliver that message. So I tried to dial it in. Well, that was a nice compliment, though, to say that. Um, this is what I want to ask you to do, if you want. Can you give some credits to some of the adults that have um, shaped your life? Yeah. Um, Just say their names so they can be said. So I, I, I certainly like, uh, I, even, I even give credit to my mom. Um, sure. Because, you know, despite the adversities, right, I always, I always felt loved. I always felt like uh, she did the best she could for me. And then that, that showed me really early that it's just tough to be an adult. It's tough. Life is tough. Despite our best efforts, uh, we fail. We're flawed, right? And so I, I learned that very early on. Um, I already talked about Ken Hansen. Uh, maybe I'll just talk about the police department, right? Uh, my f my partner, Zach Judnan, um, it was really interesting because we didn't interact a ton in the academy. And so then we found ourselves in a place where um, we were willing to sign up for each other. And me signing up for him was less... Uh, wait, I think, than him signing up for me, right? Because um, I think everybody kind of knew. It's funny, uh, Sergeant Omari, our, uh, he always tells me a story, and it's pretty good. It's a Dean story, right? And so he's like, in the academy, I remember you raised your hand, and you're like, how do I get to the gang unit? And then you got here, like, in four years. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and and Sergeant Omari, uh, he was, he's not, he's still the guy, right? But he was the guy, he was like, where you go to, um, and he's going to go and do amazing things and be Sergeant Omari. Right. Uh -huh. But it, it was interesting. He, he, uh, he recounted that story to me later and, 
uh, not only did I remember it, but he was like, I knew right away, you know? Um, and so, uh, certainly my partner, my, uh, my first boss was, uh, Nicole Spears and, um, she inherited all of my craziness, right? Which is tough for a patrol boss and a new boss, right? She was a new sergeant. Yeah. She took my spot. Yeah. And my number. Yeah. And so I just missed you. Yeah. You, you could have almost inherited me and then try to figure out what to do, you know? And, um, and you would have been really good at it, I think, uh, from what I've heard. And then, uh, we had Sergeant Lynch and I think Sergeant Lynch was a new boss too. And he worked really, really hard to like, uh, there's a lot of stuff that happens, right? You have 20 year relationships. Uh, he had all of these relationships with cops and I think cops would come in and just like tell Dean stories and like, you know, get them all stirred up and nervous and mad. And then I would say to him, I was like, listen, you can be mad at me. I'm not, and you're the sergeant, right? I'm not telling you what to do, but I was like, if you don't talk to me, how do you even know what happened? I was here. That guy wasn't even here, you know? <laughs> and so he, he was able to work through it. Um, certainly commander Frazier was amazing to me. I have Sean Campbell as my boss now. Um, and Sean Campbell, Eagle one is, uh, he's done everything cool you can do. And then all he ever wants you to do is, uh, be safe and take care of you. Yeah. And so he's willing to fight the battles. He's everything that you would want for somebody to support you, especially like in a time where being proactive or putting yourself in harm's way is, mm -hmm. is something that people are nervous about. And certainly he, he gets nervous, but he's, uh, he's there to take care of cops and yeah. he's done that for a long time. Sure. So, you know, um, yeah, he was my midnight boss for a little bit. Um, he, um, you named some great people and you, 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 you didn't name some other people that have been influential because you didn't think of it at the moment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we want to give them credit too. Um, I, I, cause I know you do. Um, so, just as a, just such a reminder, we don't know where we are in other people's lives. Are we at the at the front end, where we make them aware of something, or we're at the middle, kind of where we have to help them slog along, or we're at the end where we close the deal, you know? And all these people in our lives, and and now you do that for others, um, good man. So, um, I better not let you have a chance to talk. No, because we'll go another half hour. Yeah. you can't do it. Right. We'll just we'll just speed. We'll just have Owen speed up the tape, so we'll cram it into an hour. So, oh, really, man. really, uh, this is a real pleasure. Cer and, certainly, uh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, thank you for doing this, because uh, I want to hear from more cops. I want, um, I I think people come here and be honest. I hope I I I have faith that they do. Yeah. Um, and the people that you've had on here amazing stories amazing uh experiences yeah. and and i think they're willing to come see you that's great well that's it's really enjoyable to do um the riots threw it off a little bit but we're back on track so yeah we got a day off huh <laughs> <laughs> thank you tony and thanks everybody for listening i'll go back to work <laughs>